Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now podcasting from scenic Colorado Springs, Colorado, here's your host, Jason Day. Welcome, friends, to another insightful episode of the Church Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Day. And this week, I had the opportunity to connect with Mark Damaz, pastor, theologian, and author of his latest book, The Coming Revolution in Church Economics. Now, I want you to listen to the subtitle of his book, Why Tithes and Offerings Are No Longer Enough and What to Do About It. This is a fascinating conversation that we have this week. Now, Mark is the founding pastor of Mosaic Church in Central Arkansas and the co-founder of the Mosaics Global Network. He also serves as an adjunct professor at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary and also at Wheaton College. Now, in this week's episode, Mark and I discuss the stark reality of what churches are facing in terms of giving and contributions. Uh, We talk about the incredible disruption that is upon us and why pastors need to take the time to understand that what we have been doing is not going to sustain ministry moving forward. Mark shares how to approach church economics from a biblical perspective, and he provides practical advice on structuring for sustainability including some real-world examples. Now, this is such an important conversation for the church that does not seem to be getting enough attention. So let's dive right into my conversation with Mark Demez. Mark, so good to have you with us on the Church Leaders Podcast. Thanks for being with us. You bet, Jason. Thanks for having me. Uh, Mark, we, we see a lot of things changing in the world. It's, uh, you know, it's one of the constants, as we say, is change, right? And and one of the big things that we see in the landscape of the church kind of generationally speaking, is that oftentimes millennials look at things like volunteering and sort of spreading the word about a cause as being the best way to help an organization. And although that, that that's awesome and that's great and we want to champion that, uh, we do need to step back and recognize that this is going to have an impact more than likely on tithing, on giving, um, when it comes to the, you know the main financial givers of churches, as as boomers, the silent generation are aging out of the church. You know the question is what's going to help fill that gap. Um, a lot of people are like, hey, well the you know millennials, younger generations just need to to step up and change the way they look at things. But I was wondering, Mark, if you could just kind of talk us through sort of these shifting realities um, that the churches who rely on tithes and offerings are going to face probably over these next you know, couple decades. Well, Jason, thanks so much for having me on the Church Leaders Podcast. It's great to be with you and talking about such an important concept. Uh, as I wrote about in the book, The Coming Revolution in Church Economics, why tithes and offerings are no longer enough and what we need to do about that is pastors and churches right now in order to pivot for changing financial times. You know, the fact is a church is an economic system. Uh, and it depends on butts in the seat, as pastors like to call it. So for instance, a church provides a number of goods and services, right? So when you're sick, we'll visit you in the hospital, we'll pro- provide children's programs, worship attend, uh, we'll provide worship on Sunday mornings, Bible studies and small groups. And, and in a sense, when you think about it, the church provides these goods and services. And in return, uh, those who attend or are members of the church are expe- expected to pay some portion of that bill. That's no different than a restaurant. You go to a restaurant, right? You didn't cook the meal, you didn't prepare the environment, you didn't hire the staff, but at the end of of partaking in their goods and services, you're expected to pay a portion of the bill. That's called an economic system. Again, the church is no different. We have an economic system. And, And so for the goods and services we put out in the spiritual sense, 
people are expected to pay and how they're expected to pay is in the form of tithes and offerings. But as you just mentioned, uh, tithes and offerings uh, are stagnant and going into decline largely due to changing uh, uh, generational attitudes and giving, changing demographics in the church. Uh, for instance, millennials, uh, uh, it's documented that millennials do not trust institutions the way people bor born before 1964 do, nor do they give money in bulk sums to those institutions. So number one, if they give it all, uh, and of course they do, but when they give, they tend to spread that giving out. They give some to a friend. They give some to uh, a homeless person. They send someone uh, some overseas, and sure, they'll give some to the church. But it doesn't come in a bulk form. It's not as much as those born before 1964. For instance, 78% uh, of total church giving is given by people born before 1964, uh, but only 26% uh, of total church donors make up those uh, born after 1965 are giving to the church. So there's, there's generational shifts in attitude. Millennials tend to see equated with giving. Uh, equal to that is volunteerism and product endorsement. So in other words, they say, oh, look, take a look at these shoes. You know, I, I bought these shoes. And if you buy one pair, they'll send a pair to Africa for free. And so they go on social media and they'll share this information with people. And they think uh, and it's documented that they think that is equal uh, to volunteerism and equal also to giving money. People born before 1964 do not think this way. And so there is generational shifts in terms of approaches to giving and finance that are already under a foot and affecting the bottom line of local churches. On that same note, think about this. Uh, for every person, let, let's just say I, I'm 58 years old, but uh, let's say someone's 65 in your church and, and they've been a member, they've been an attender, and they die, or they move to a different city, or, or, or they get sideways of the church and they go somewhere else and they take their money with them. How many millennials will it take in terms of giving to replace that one person uh, born before 1965, uh, 1964 in your church, maybe 10, maybe 12. And then you think, what's the customer acquisition cost for that? Uh, it, you, you can go on to attract a 65-year-old. You just go and, and say, hey, we preach the word of God. We have a, a Sunday school class for people your age. And, and they come. That ain't enough to cut it when you talk to people born after 1964. Uh, and so in business terms, the customer acquisition cost is much more to reach millennials and young people. And what this means is church, uh, is pastors are like hamsters on a wheel trying to run and catch up, get more people to the church, get more people to church, but it's never gonna be enough, again, because of changing generational uh, or generational shifts and approaches to giving, let alone changing demographics and population, income disparity between whites and blacks and Asians and Hispanics with diversification going on in this country. Uh, by 2042, one in two people will not be white. Again, you have income disparity. 43% of millennials are not white. And so in other words, uh, one white person, uh, just in terms of the general population, uh, I think the last I checked, and, and I could be wrong, but income disparity between whites and blacks is something like one to 10, one to 15, maybe as high as one to 20. So in other words, even with demographic shifts, we have a problem because of the wealth gap uh, that exists between people group in this country. Man, I could go on. I could talk about the rise of dual income households, how today uh, over 75% or so of households require two incomes. And, and all this is affecting discretionary time. Uh, there's just not enough money to go around. And so the tithe and offering in a church, when we pass the bucket, think about that as it was 50 years ago, a single paycheck in a household uh, could essentially help a household live a middle-class life. The tithe and offering is like that. It's a single paycheck, 
But in this day and age, the church, like most families, are going to require multiple streams of income for funding going forward. Man, that's that, that that's a lot, and it kind of paints the picture for us. And I think it's a picture that most pastors don't sit back and assess. You know, what I mean, I mean, this isn't um, in in conversations that that I'm having with my colleagues. This isn't necessarily something we're having over. You know, talking about this over a cup of coffee, right? So, I, I think it's important for us to kind of look at that. Look at this. One one of the questions I have for you, Mark, is that when you talk about the church being an economic system, um, that kind of even language and talking about almost customer acquisition, I know that some people push back, you know, some pastors, some people in the church push back on that. You've said and, and made it clear, and even in your book, you kind of touch on this, that churches and pastors, you know, they can no longer just afford to to just sit back, pray, be patient, wait on God to provide for our churches, that there needs to be you know, something where they're assessing what's going on and stepping into what's going on. Uh, to some— the, talking in this way may seem, you know, somewhat unbiblical. It may, you know, it may ruffle some feathers. What do you have to say to those who may see this as maybe counter to some of the core beliefs of Christianity or or, or have a, a struggle with this, using this kind of language around the church? Yeah, I am so glad that you asked that question. And I hope that anyone listening today will get the book because— um, this is all fundamentally uh, 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 theological in its core. The messaging we're talking about and the message the American church needs to embrace is fundamentally theological at, at its core. And in the second chapter, for instance, we deal with seven passages of Scripture and lay the theological framework for this. So I totally get uh, that that using business language, if you will, or thinking about uh, these things in business terms, I totally get there's an instant reaction to that. And again, we deal in the second chapter with seven assumptions that people make about uh, macro giving in terms of the collective church that have to be disrupted because uh, it, it, they're just fundamentally not right. Let me give you an example. For instance, um, let me ask you, I'll just, I'll, I'll just ask you, Jason, you know, some people will say, well, the church shouldn't be really, it shouldn't be making money or thinking about making money or doing business. Man, we should just rely on God. We should just pray and trust God. And George Mueller did it and we should do the same thing. Just sit back and pray and trust God. Just keep preaching the gospel. Well, let me ask you a question, Jason. So if I'm talking to you, let's say you had said that to me. Here's what I'm going to say to you. I say, let me ask you, Jason, do you go to, have you ever been to a doctor? Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever taken prescription drugs? Yes. Like, where's your faith, man? Right. <laughs> you know, like, let me ask you, you ever, co you ever take a mortgage out on a house and, and sign for a loan on your car for your kid to go to college? Where's your faith? Mm. Do you have a job, Jason? Do you go to, do you go to work every day and you work hard for a paycheck? Where's your faith? Just sit back in your living room and pray and, and trust God and read your Bible and expect God to show, put money in the mailbox, right? Here's the thing. People individually, Christians individually don't live like that. Okay, that, that, that you right. can't. Why would we expect the collective church would simply sit back, pray, preach the gospel, and trust that God will provide? Right. Just like in evangelism, we don't. How do we evangelize? Outreach is all about that, right? Being right. intentional about evangelism, right? We don't just sit around. I say, hey, Jason, what's your evangelistic method? You say, oh man, I just walk around the streets, dude. I just walk around and I just, I just, I just hope God, you know, will conversation will happen. I just trust the Lord of God to fall, right? No, we have a plan. Like we say, let's go and talk to our neighbors and let's share Christ. And and the way God set this thing up is yes, God is the one who offers and who provides and who who basically saves people, right? But in his sovereignty, the primary way he does that is with us in partnership with mm -hmm. him, right? That's why he said, go into all the world. We're to be intentional about evangelism. We're intentional on our worship. We're intentional on our discipleship. 
We better be intentional about our economics. And there is nothing wrong and everything right about that when it comes to faith and uh, to, to working out our faith, if you will, uh, in this regard with fear and trembling. So people don't live individually like this, just sit back and hope and trust that God will provide. They get after it in their jobs that if they're sick, they go to a hospital, etc. So we can't expect that erroneous thinking to be placed on the church that somehow collective churches sits back and does nothing. Here's another thing. It's, it's, it's uh, really the, the passage of, of, of good stewardship. In American church, what is good stewardship? Good stewardship is essentially, hey, we've got this building, God provided this land, this building, we gotta take care of it. Hey, there's a hole in the wall, let's fix the hole in the wall because we've gotta take care of what God has given us, right? Entrusted to us. Uh, it's also about good accounting. We gotta practice good accounting uh, as, as people give money, we got to properly account for it, and we've got to clearly communicate that to the body, where the money is going, uh, etc. right? So those are the primary things that define what the church thinks is good stewardship, and I'm all about those things. Yes, that's good stewardship, but if we're being, being very exegetically specific, that's not what good stewardship is in the Bible. Good stewardship, uh, told by none other than Jesus Christ, is this, hey, you give me five bucks, here's your five, and I made you five. You gave me two, here's your two, and I made you two. That is defined, well done, good and faithful steward, good and faithful servant. It had to do with doubling, and I'm not always saying doubling, but basically not bearing. One guy, one guy sat on his asset. Think about that. Yep. One guy sat on the asset. And, and what does he hold in that story? Wicked, lazy slave. I have it on good authority that uh, from, from research and people I talk to, that the American church right now is setting on billions, billions of dollars mm. uh, of buried assets. Now, what does that mean? That means like, let's say a church owns 20 acres, 40 acres of land. It, it's just sitting there doing nothing, right? But they own it and, and, and they own it. Maybe they're going to develop it someday, but it's just sitting there. It's a church of 65 people with a two and a half million dollar endowment in the bank. And nobody's getting saved. The community's not being engaged. Uh, uh, the common good not being advanced, but by golly, those 65 people are proud of the fact that they have a two and a half million dollar endowment in the bank. When you add up the collective assets of the church that are buried in the ground at this moment, unused, it's in the billions and billions of dollars. Imagine if that was unleashed in an economic way mm. uh, to reach communities in this country. But what would Jesus say? Wicked, lazy slave. <laughs> That's not good stewardship. Good stewardship is, hey, you gave me five, Here's your five, I made you five. And if we will turn the power of economics, just and I call it just economics, Jason, just economics. It's not about sitting back, getting fat, happy, and rich, and leveraging our assets uh, to, to build our own kingdoms, right? right. No, it's, it's to do this to advance the gospel in a credible way, in a way that will break through the cynicism and, and the polarization of our society because everybody responds to job creation, reduction in crime, repurpose of abandoned property, this is what will get the attention of the lost in our day and age. In fact, I believe at least for the next 30 years, if not longer, that the primary way to reach this world uh, with the gospel will has to do with advancing just economics. Now think about that. In the 20th century, the way you brought people to Christ was through explanation of the gospel, right? So you brought Billy Graham to your city, you bring your friends to the stadium, Billy Graham clearly explained the gospel and people got saved. Uh, you give out the four, you, you go to Myrtle Beach and you share the four spiritual laws with a stranger and you explain the gospel and they get saved. Uh, you give them more than a carpenter, evidence that the man's a verdict by Josh McDowell, and they read it and, and the case is made, it's explained and they get saved. 
that doesn't cut it in the 21st century. In the 21st century, it's not explanation, it's demonstration of the gospel. Mm. It's got to be works, right? Matthew 5, 16, let them see your good works. And this is what will shine a light on who God is and how he loves. The way to evangelize in the 21st century, certainly for the next 30 years, uh, and and if not the rest of the century, will not be traditional evangelism of explanation. It will be coupling explanation, but more powerfully with the demonstration of Matthew 5, 16. And the good works we need to advance are really twofold, building healthy, multi-ethnic, economically diverse churches that reflect the love of God on earth as it is in heaven and reflect their communities. And secondly, practicing and advancing just economics through the local church, leveraging assets, blessing the community, and at the same time, generating some measure of sustainable income to supplement tithes and offerings. That's good, brother. And as you're talking about that, the idea of just economics, I think, is is powerful and important. I think one of the questions that that many might have around this is, if we want to get to a place of just economics— and we're, we're talking on the micro level, like local church level, and we're already strained economically. How do we, like, how do we move to a place where we are do, having a positive impact? You know, showing good works so people look to the Father. You know, how do we do that if it's already strained financially, and we see, you know, these givers are are literally, um, you know dying, you know, the, the bulk of givers are aging out, right? How do we do both? Because it almost sounds like, oh, that sounds great, fantastic, but yet the money's going away, right? So so, so walk us through what, I'm even you at your church, Mosaic, what you guys have looked at and what you've um, helped other pastors and churches look at in their communities, how do you do both just economics whenever you know that there is this this bleeding out of, of giving? Yeah, well, let me just say this. Uh, our church is in its 19th year. We're uh, urban and uh, inner city, uh, 30% poverty, 66% of kids without dads in the home. We came to that community 19 years ago and it affected transformational work in that community. Now, here's the point. We started that church with me, my wife, and and four children and, and no funding, like in terms of like a denominational network. No, we started with nothing. So we have grown through this process over time uh, to get to this point, it's not like we're some, uh, you know, wealthy mega church or whatever. So I mm-hmm. understand the question at the most fundamental micro level, and I've had to live through that. In fact, early in the, our church life, when when you're advancing, you know, building a healthy, multi-ethnic, economically diverse church in the urban center, uh, what you quickly realize is the more people that join your church, it costs you money. Mm. Okay, so I used to be in a church where the more people that came, I, I used to be in a church where the elders would sit back in the budgeting process. And they would literally calculate how many new people they expected to come next year, join the church. And they literally put a dollar head. They called them giving units. And they put a dollar amount. The average person gives this. We're going to grow by 300. Therefore, we could expect this much money next year. I, I have sat in those meetings, mm-hmm. right? When I planted this church, man, I quickly realized the more people that join my church, it's costing us money. Like there's no way we're going to be able to do this. And if we were going to, and with the high need of our community and a bold vision, there was no way that was going to be funded by tithes and offerings alone. So we quickly had to realize how do we create multiple streams of income in order to fund bold vision in an urban center? Now, having said that, um, uh, let me say this, pastors need to think with a mindset of abundance, not scarcity. And if you think you've got a problem right now with no money, trust me, if you don't have a disruptive economic understanding, 
and, and change the, the way you go about this, you won't have anything in five years. Mm -hmm. Okay. You keep giving things away for free. So what, what happened in my case is desperation to build this type of church and to meet the needs of the community and community engagement, et cetera, desperation coupled with our passion, right? Because if you don't have passion, it's not going to happen. You got to have a passion. That's like a vision, right? right? Like you have this burning passion to engage the community for Christ, but you're desperate because the old funding model doesn't work uh, as it didn't in my case, or it's going away as in most churches, then that's going to lead you to innovation. Mm. And to innovate, you're going to have to think with a mindset of abundance, right? Not scarcity. So in, scarcity is more like the fear, like, oh my gosh, we don't have enough money. To, well, if you keep saying we don't have enough money, yeah, you're not going to have enough money. But the way to go get more money is not get more butts in the seat, right? Uh, I mean, sure, I'm all about that. Seeing people save the church grow, yes. But that can't be your only understanding of what it's going to take. So we need to develop an entrepreneurial mindset the same way that, that there's an entrepreneurial mindset in the, in the population right now. We have to develop that collectively and see our church as an entrepreneur in this regard. And again, we're going to have to create a new uh, multiple streams of income to get at this. So we can't think with a mindset of scarcity, but with abundance. Now, some people talk about bivocational, co-vocational, but that's really related to the individual. Uh, bivocational, I, I don't know. There's very few churches in America uh, that, that is significant in size or work that are being led by a bivocational pastor. There's, uh, there's others that are led by co-vocational pastors. That's somebody who chooses to be a doctor and, and feels a calling as well as to the church. But again, when you put that out over 325,000 churches uh, that, that, and, and what's going on, that's not going to fund a church. That might help fund an individual, but that's not going to fund a church. So we've got to go way beyond buy and co-vocational understanding. And here's the bottom line, Jason. This is really simple if I break it down. Church economics, which is the phrase. So if I say Dave Ramsey, you know what I'm talking about. If I say generosity, you know what I'm talking about. The entire American church is about to know what it means, church, what the phrase church economics means. It means this, leveraging assets, le I'm sorry, le leveraging church assets, which are people, money, and buildings to bless the community, that is to advance the gospel, community engagement, et cetera, but at the same time generating that sustainable income. So how do you do that? Well, Bottom line is you're going to have to. There's three specific, there's three macro ways to do this. Number one, rent your facilities. We call it benevolent ownership. You've got the, these buildings are sitting there abandoned, empty, underutilized. We've got to repurpose those buildings and generate sustainable income by creating rent rolls. So one is to become a benevolent owner and leverage your facility. Uh, your parking lot in all kinds uh, in our parking lot we rent it twice a year to a carnival we make sixteen thousand dollars a year that's one month of our mortgage right there just from a carnival mm. simple little things like that so we, we rent half our space we have a hundred thousand square foot kmart we bought i rent half of it to a suburban fitness club that moved into the inner city because i gave them low rent and 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 the bottom line is we make half our mortgage payment just on that one rent contract and i've still got fifty thousand square feet for my church so We've got to rent our buildings, right, and leverage those. Number two, we've got to monetize existing services. What is that? Every church in America, for instance, or most, I should say, I'm sure are giving away free coffee on Sunday morning. But because pastors are not to think, taught to think like business people and pastors run all this stuff, we're giving away this free coffee. Well, ask yourself, how much does it cost you every month in your church to give away free coffee? And then multiply that by 12. When we did that in our church, we found out we're giving away about $3,000 a year in free coffee. Now, the, you could say that's hospitality. You could hope that people will put money in the tip jar to cover it. 
Uh, you could hope that they join the church and then somehow magically ties and offerings will cover that 3000 But here's the deal. In business, nobody gives anything away for free. So when they say, hey, come on down and buy my car, I, we get, we'll give you $500 off. They, they got a plan to get you for that 500 plus a thousand more once you get into the, the, the process of insurance and all that stuff. And, 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 and so they've got a plan to get that money back. We need one too. So think about coffee. Why, why is $3,000 a year walking out my front door? Because I don't have a plan. So what we did in our church, I went up to Sam's Club, bought a microwave, bought Jimmy Dean sausage biscuits. I could get them for about 95 cents a biscuit. I could heat them up on a Sunday, sell them for two bucks. McDonald's across the street has them for three fifty. So I'm under the market on that. My people come to church on time. You, they, they don't have to stop and get something to eat, right? They got the biscuit right there. I make a buck a biscuit. You sell three thousand a year. You cover your free coffee, and that three thousand can go to summer youth scholarships to camp. Hmm. They can be spent in a much more direct way. And I'm talking about the most micro level thinking on this. Uh, why do you pay a janitor company to clean your place? Take the money and start a janitor company. Get contracts out there uh, in other churches or other places, and the net profit will pay your janitor company to clean your church for free, and you'll save 25000 a year. And that money can go to direct ministry, right? But we're just not taught to think about this. So monetizing existing services has to do with the things a church is already doing that with some thought and getting business people involved with you, those things could be monetized in a way that generates some measure of income while at the same time providing uh, uh, quality uh, goods and services at affordable prices, which also blesses the community. And lastly, not only becoming a benevolent owner, which is essentially renting your space, monetizing existing services, but lastly, starting new businesses. Most pastors do not realize that a, a nonprofit can start a for-profit business. Uh, you can do that. And and there's really just two things that have to happen. If I, as a nonprofit, if the church, as a nonprofit, I, I just take a coffee again. Let's say we open a for-profit coffee shop. You can do that as long as, number one, the money that's made, any net profit on that coffee shop must go back to the nonprofit uh, to its budget. In other words, you couldn't say the elders of a church couldn't sit around and say, hey, we netted $20,000 on a coffee shop last year. Last year, let's pay ourselves bonuses. You can't do that, mm -hmm. right? So, so the 20,000 net, let's say, would have to go back to the nonprofit uh, church general budget, okay? Number two, you have to pay taxes just like any other coffee shop owner. So just pay the taxes. It takes money to make money, right? And so if, as long as you pay the taxes and that money is going back in support of the vision, the mission, the nonprofit uh, by which it's established, it's 501c3 uh, at a macro level – you can start businesses and generate profitable income. Now, there's one other thing someone might point out. This is in the weeds, but according to IRS rules, you can't make a nonprofit cannot make a substantial. This is the phrase: a substantial amount of its budget based on for-profit uh, business, right? So, so some people say, "Oh, I'll just keep it at ten or fifteen percent." But the problem is nobody's defined that phrase. So legally, the phrase "substantial amount." has not been defined. Is that 50%? Is that 30%? What, let's just say all of a sudden you started a business and it just blew up and, and you're making, I'm, yeah, I'm just saying, let's say you're making a million dollars a year and your budget's only 500,000, right? Well, if that was to happen, what a good problem you'd have, right? So <laughs> how, how would you deal with it? You just spin the thing off as an LLC, right. just so you out from under, and then the people that own the LLC understand what it exists for, and they they kick the money back in the terms of a legal nonprofit donation back to the church. So that business then 
is not under the church anymore, and but it's still the church is still benefiting through the donations that come from that business. But you create a separate legal entity uh, that's a business, and and therefore this this qualification of a substantial amount is not coming from a for-profit business owned by the nonprofit. So when you keep those things in mind, here's the bottom line. Definitely don't just take my advice. You got to talk to an attorney, a tax attorney, talk to an accountant, uh, research yourself, talk to your county because property tax can be involved in that. We pay property tax. We're glad to pay it. It helps uh, our, our community. We pay about 25000 a year, but we build that into our rent contract. So actually the church technically pays property tax, but but in, in reality, we don't because we build that into the rent contract. So the renters end up giving portions to that and it pays the, the rent. So it, there's just so much that pastors, we, none of us, virtually none of us, unless they were you know a business major or something, certainly in seminary, nobody got business classes, nobody got economics, nobody got commercial development. And all that must change if the church is not only going to survive, but thrive in very challenging economic times ahead. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that, that's some powerful stuff. Um, and kind of processing through that and thinking how all those pieces come into play, um, I was thinking about your church and and really other churches that are looking to plant in urban areas. And one of the one of the real struggles is kind of sustainability, as as you've shared, right? This whole idea of like like you said, the more your church actually grew and made an impact, the more. Uh, it cost you, uh, the more you had to come up with funds somewhere, somehow, some way, right? So right. Um, talk to us a little bit about church planners who have, you know, you, you know this, this incredible idealism that they're going to step into the urban center and they're going to make an impact because they see all the needs there. And how, how do they kind of process through that in a way that's practical, that they're not just kind of there survive for 18 months and then gone, or that what we see a lot is maybe a suburban church then comes in and does some sort of a work within the inner city. Um, talk to us a little bit. Of how, how does a church actually plant, start, make an impact in the urban center kind of on its own? Is, is that? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I totally understand. Well, again, this goes to a deeper issue. And that ha- we talked about the church as an economic system and how our system is actually failing us at the moment. And we've got to disrupt our thinking about that. Uh, similarly, uh, church planting, denominations, networks, the entire understanding of church planting, particularly in the urban space like you're talking about, but in the future everywhere is going to have to change. And I'll tell you why at a macro level, because the, the way a church is typically done, and we write about this in the book, um, but basically you got to know people. Here's, here's the bottom line. To plan a church, you got to know people. Mm. Okay. You got to know a denomination. You've got to know a network, uh, a, a network like, uh, you know, a church planning network. You got to be tight with these people. They got to trust you, whatever. And, or you've got to know private donors. Mm. Okay. Now th- this is the reality. Again, we talked about that earlier. Because of income disparity in this country, because of 400 years of, of white uh, power, privilege, et cetera, and the income gaps that have been created between whites, blacks, Asians, Hispanics, et cetera, essentially what that means is you've got to be white, okay, at the general level. I'm not taking, of course, there's African-American as church planners, Asian, et cetera. I'm just talking purely in money from a conceptual standpoint. Mm-hmm. You see, you, you say to a church planner, oh, yeah, you, you say to an African-American, Okay, a given income disparity between whites and blacks, and you say to an African American, "Hey, you got to go out and raise three hundred thousand for the first three years." 
and and then you can plant a church. Good luck. Mm. Well, see, because of income disparity, whites will generally have a better shot at doing that than blacks, certainly, and blacks have a better shot than Hispanics, mm. right? And, and so the point is income disparity is, is a problem with our model because it assumes that people can generate income uh, through their connections. And, and again, that's, that too is going away with changing demographics and population. So all that's to say at a macro level, that's a problem. Now, at a micro level, how would a pastor do it? Well, right now we're tasking them, you got to be bivocational. Right. But but again, you a double minded man, if you will, is unstable in all their ways. I'm not against uh, like somehow that fundamentally it's a sin to be bivocational. I'm just saying I think there's a better way. So here's the point. You're going to need partnerships and investment and an entrepreneurial spirit, uh, entrepreneurial mindset. So I'd say those are three fundamental shifts. So the entrepreneurism, uh, let's just take that one. A church planner today has got to think like an entrepreneur. And I'm talking about, again, this idea of generating income, not just raising money. Mm. Okay. You've got to think about generating income. And so what businesses, what, what could, is there a building that I could lease and, and could I get into partnership with others? So here's the three things and they're all synergistic. So it's not like one, two, three, but you're going to need investors, not just donations. You're going to need investors. Okay. Number two, you're going to need partners. And I'm not just talking about a, a denomination or network. I'm talking about partners in the community, uh, working with other nonprofits, people that can uh, that, uh, that, that you and they can exchange value with, right? Mm -hmm. To go into business together, so to speak. So in other words, instead of a church, this is a simple thing, but instead of a church trying to buy a, land, a, a building it can't, you know, afford, you could go in with two other nonprofits and all three of you could possibly afford it. Right. And so then you work that deal out. So you were, it's going to require a lot more partnership than independent church. And, and again, that, uh, that entrepreneurial spirit that's thinking, I'm not just planning a, a church. I've got to plant a team. Now, what a church planner today, certainly in their space. And I'd say everyone has to think about is you can't just plant a church. You've got to plan a nonprofit and a for-profit all at the same time. Now, what, is, what does that look like? Think about an American football team. An American football team actually is a team of teams. It's, the three, it's actually three teams on one team, offense, defense, special teams. Each of those teams is actually, if you really think about it, they play, sure, they play football generally, but specifically, each of those teams play a very different game. In fact, the game is so different, they're never on the field at the same time, and they each have their own coach. Okay, now... What what that if you put that in your head because people are listening, put that on a three legged stool, okay? And so one leg is offense, one leg is defense, one leg is special teams. Now let's think about the church. What you're going to have to develop uh, over time, and I'm telling you, it's going to take seven to ten years minimum to go from survival to stability, and another seven to ten from stability to sustainability. You've got to lean in through passion, prayer, patience, and persistence to make this dream a reality. But what you got to do is you can't just plant a spiritual leg. So the, the first leg we're gonna call spiritual. That's the church, that's evangelism, discipleship, worship, all the things we think of church. You can't just play a one-legged game. You cannot field a one-dimensional team, if you will. You're gonna also have to have a social leg. That's your second leg. That would be your social justice and compassionate work. I advocate in creating an, a separate nonprofit from the church to house all your justice and compassionate work in the community. So you don't create five nonprofits, you create one nonprofit with five programs. You move all your justice and compassion work out from under the church budget into the nonprofit budget, and why? 
because the church is led by a senior pastor funded by tithes and offerings. The nonprofit will be led, the coach, if you will, will be the executive director, and the primary funding will be grants and donations. Other churches will give you money. They won't write a check to your church. They'll write it to your nonprofit, though. They'll send people down to work in your chess program or with teen mothers or preschoolers or kids aging out of foster care. They'll get involved with your nonprofit in a way they won't with the church. And so what you're doing is creating partnerships and multiple streams of income. But the third leg is the for-profit leg. That's what we've been talking about. We call that the financial leg. So a spiritual leg, social leg, financial leg, like offense, defense, special teams. This leg is led by a CEO business type, right? And then how this leg is funded is by, again, uh, uh, you know, as we said, um, becoming a benevolent owner, monetizing services, starting businesses. But it's a for-profit generating leg uh, that's run by business types. And that feeds money back into the church in a for-profit way. Again, so for-profit income, nonprofit grants and donations, uh, church tithes and offerings, multiple streams of income by developing a team of teams, getting the right people over those teams as if three coordinators, offense, defense, special teams. And this is the mindset that church planners have to adopt if they're going to make it. And I'm telling you, you cannot just plan a church anymore. It's not going to happen. You can't play a one-dimensional game when you need to play on three different fronts simultaneously in order not only to reach the world with the gospel, but again, to be financially and credibly sustainable going forward in, in an increasingly diverse, cynical, uh, uh, and painfully polarized society. Yeah, that's good. And, and I, I love that, Mark. And, and you spell all of that out in chapter four of your book um, and you, with that three-legged stool and, and just really walking through what each of those look like and the different um, kind of features within those and how those together benefit uh, the work of the church. So um, certainly appreciate that. Just real quickly before before we um, uh, have to have to go here, I'm just curious. Most of us can wrap our heads obviously around the spiritual leg and the social leg. You know, most most churches have are doing both of those things. The financial leg can be a little more challenging. Can you just share um, maybe some examples of what churches are doing and doing well? around that financial leg? Like what are some real life examples, um, you know, just, just different ideas so that as people are listening in, they can think through, oh yeah, maybe, maybe that's something that makes sense or something that we might be able to do in our community. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I really, Jason, I, I gotta tell you, you're asking great questions here. You really are. And see what I want to do, Jason, what, a, what the pastor's listening to me again, you don't have to do this. What you got to know is what I'm telling you you want to go to that entrepreneur and go, look, I got $3,000 a year walking out my front door in the form of free coffee. You think you could figure that out? Mm. Now, every time I speak to marketplace leaders, business people, whatever in this regard, you can't see me because we're doing this audio, but they all sit up in their chairs and they lean forward. They are desperately desiring the gifts, the passion, the ex- life experience they have. They want to be more than a paycheck to a church. They want to partner when we talked about partnerships, they want to partner. Give them your financial challenges um, and, and free them, equip them, empower them with a responsible authority to get involved and then sit back and let it happen. Mm. Take off the constraints of the past and thinking inside the box. Let it go. Say, again, simple. I got $3,000 walking out my front door. Jason, you think you could figure that out whereby we could we could sell stuff, whatever, and retain that $3,000? And th- those people are going to go, not only will I get you three, I'm going to get you 10. Mm-hmm. Why? Because they understand biblical good stewardship. That's so good. Such a great conversation. I know we could go for 
for literally hours on this. And mm-hmm. um, but I want to encourage everyone to to pick up Mark's book, The Coming Revolution in Church Economics. It goes into to great depth many of the things that we touched upon and uh, gives gives examples and gives um, the biblical theological um, underpinnings uh, of this entire conversation, which I think are super key, especially when you're going to your leadership. Um, your elders, your board, and in, in kind of talking through, you know, what it's going to look like to disrupt the church and, and how the church ha- has possibly been and, and what the church needs to move forward, as Mark has, has shared with us. So, Mark, um, if people want to connect with you aside from picking up the book, are there other ways that uh, they might be able to connect or learn more about this? Yeah, of course. You know, uh, uh, you can, you know, email. I'm easy to find online at mosaicchurchmosaics.info. Uh, you know, just Email us at, at you know Allison A L I S O N at mosaics.info, uh, Mark at mosaics.info. I'm super easy to find. Always glad to respond. Help the church, uh, all that. And let me just say, Jason, I you know I'm talking super fast and a lot because it's such a deep conversation. And you know I've kind of got that uh, that problem. I want everybody to know what I know all in like 30 minutes, right? <laughs> <laughs> so if I'm talking fast, everyone, I apologize. But seriously, get the book. Let us know if we can help. Uh, there's so many other products at mosaics.info that we offer to help you in this space and other ways. So just check us out and, and get to the web and give us a call, mosaix.info. Perfect, brother. Appreciate it, my friend. Thank you for all you're doing for the church. Thank you for your prophetic voice, looking at what's uh, what's happening currently and what's coming up and how we as a church can adequately respond so that we can live out uh, God's mission effectively, brother. Certainly appreciate it. You bet. Thanks for having me, Jason. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us on this week's episode. Every week as we are putting the episodes together, we're thinking of you, our pastors and ministry leaders, and striving to provide insightful and inspiring interviews as you seek to grow as a kingdom leader. So we hope you're finding value from the Church Leaders Podcast, and if so, we'd certainly appreciate you taking a few moments to head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Your positive reviews and ratings help other church leaders more easily find our podcasts so they too can benefit from these interviews. Again, we thank you in advance, and if you have any comments, any questions, suggestions, or ideas for guests, I would love to hear from you. You can send me an email to podcast at churchleaders.com, or you can connect with me on Twitter. Finally, you can find this podcast as well as other great faith-based podcasts on the FaithPlay app. It's available for both Apple and Android, and so we encourage you to check that out as well. So until next time, this is Jason Day encouraging you to love well, and lead well. You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.